0: All wrestling fans have that one match. The winner, a
1: new world heavyweight champion, the American Dream, Nasty Roll. That we remember every
0: single detail. Oh, the, Almighty, the, is he is the one that made our hearts jump out of our chest.
1: Oh,
0: That took our breath away. TM Punk is leaving through this hometown crowd with the WWE Championship. I think he just kissed the WWE goodbye. The match that created lifelong wrestling fans. Busted Open proudly
1: presents The Matches That Made Us. Here's your host, Dave LaGreca. Welcome to a very special edition of the Busted Open Podcast. We're talking the matches that made us. And I'm here with Jonathan Hood, our host on Sundays. That's right, we are now live seven days a week thanks to our very own Jonathan Hood who hosts with Justin Labar each and every Sunday from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern Time here on SiriusXM Fight Nation. And Jonathan, the matches that made us. You and I are both the same you and i are just two old school fans of pro wrestling so i'm very interested jonathan to hear uh what was that match for you that made you a lifelong wrestling fan
0: well first dave thank you so much it's so good that we could share this platform together because these are the conversations that you and i have had for a decade On the phone, long conversations, long text messages about great matches, and so it's just great that they can carve out here at SiriusXM a platform for us to talk about matches that made us great fans, and so. I'll start first. The match that made me, we go back to November of 1986. And for those that are learning who I am for the first time, I'm from Chicago, and I'm so I'm from AWA country, American Wrestling Association. This was the home team for wrestling, seeing matches with my dad at comiskey park and the international amphitheater in chicago Vern gagne's awa their all-star wrestling was first and foremost in my household because we supported the local team the local team for us was the awa and so you know it was interesting watching the awa over the years dave because you're watching the infancy of hulkamania hulk hogan started with his WrestleMania in the AWA. We're seeing great tag teams like the Midnight Rockers, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty. We're seeing wrestlers like Doug Summers and um, Pretty Boy, Doug Summers and uh, and Buddy Rose. I mean, we're talking about some of the best, the best Tito Santana, Jesse Ventura. You go on and on. It all started in Minneapolis in the AWA. and We went to go see it as often as they came to Chicago. And so the Wrestler that resonated with me the most and still does today is Nick Bockwinkle. It's my guy. That is my number one wrestler uh, Because of how he carried himself as AWA champion Remember Dave, I'm from Chicago in the AWA 10,000 squash matches 5,000 great promos in one angle a year Okay, <laughs> that's what you got but Vern. That's what you got man. You got one angle. You were good now, That's the way they did it. And so it's just pure wrestling and Nick Bockwinkle was my guy you would think With all the enhancements, right, with production, you would have thought, hey, Nick Bockwinkle's in Beverly Hills, California, with a a blonde on his arm, and he's got these great cars, and there you see him at tennis matches. No, no, it was all about theater of the mind. The promo would make you believe that Nick Bockwinkle had all that lifestyle, but you never saw it because the AWA didn't have the infrastructure to give you vignettes like a Bruce Prichard would produce or what you see in the NWA with Ric Flair. So it was all theater of the mind. He'd get there and talk to the announcer and talk about his lifestyle as a wrestler and lifestyle as a rich man and all this other stuff. Well, Nick was my guy, even though he was a heel. But there was one match that he had that was a patch- passing of the torch, I thought, and that was to Kurt Hedding. So Nick Bachwick go against Kurt Henning at that time, November of 86. Now, at this time, here's what's interesting. I think you'll have the same thought, Dave. We're not into the dirt sheets. We're in the magazines because we love the magazines because we want to pull out posters, right? Yeah. But we di- I did not know as an AWA fan that the AWA was on its last legs in November of 86. I didn't know that. All I know is that every Saturday and Sunday, I'm tuning in to watch AWA wrestling and enjoying it. We didn't know the, like the infrastructure, who's booking, who's not, all this other stuff that we know now. I'm just watching it as a pure fan just like you did. And I didn't know that every week them being at the Showboat Sports Pavilion in Las Vegas, oh my God, this this company's in trouble. We don't know that as fans, Dave. We don't no, know that. I, we're I, just enjoying I, it. Probably
1: just, probably just the opposite, you know, because you're right. There were no dirt cheats. We didn't know about the... Uh, you know, the economy of these organizations or anything. The only probably clue that we had was about Vince McMahon going national. That was probably Mm -hmm. the only thing that we knew of as far as like what we didn't see on our TV screen. But Jonathan, I thought just the opposite because you're right. They were, you know, they had shows like whether it was the Tropicana in Atlantic City and then the Showboat in Las Vegas and then going to ESPN as well. Like I thought... Man, the AWA must be doing great because right. because the way that it was being presented it was like, man, this is this is the big time, right? Yeah. I mean, that was at least my thought back in 1986.
0: Well, just the perception of me as an eighth grader watching the AWA at that time in 86, Dave, I'm thinking, "Wow, AWA's on ESPN. They're they're going to lap the NWA and the WWF." You're yes. on ESPN, the all sports station. I mean, there was a time where AWA wrestling was on every day, five days a week. And I'm thinking, boy, they're doing well. And I had no idea that they were struggling. But here's the thing that I that I took solace in. The fact is, is that when I turned on AWA wrestling, you know, you got action, sure. But you didn't get matches like this on TV for 60 minutes. Very rare at the time, right? So you, you think about this. I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, okay, there's going to be some kind of schma, some kind of disqualification after 10 minutes. It's still old school. You throw somebody over the top rope, and it's a disqualification because Bachwinkle was always good for that. No, it goes 60 minutes, and the story is here's Nick Bachwinkle, the longtime AWA champion against this young Kurt Henning, Larry Henning's kid. And by the way, talking about not having the knowledge, and I think that you'd agree – there's some old veterans, some old salty dogs that we saw, and we didn't know their age. I had no idea Bockwink was 51. <laughs> I had no idea that. No, I'm just no watching a long time guy. I think now, again, from our TV non HD when we were watching, he looked like he's in his 30s. I didn't know he was 51 and could still go like this.
1: Yeah, he was. And I love the way you presented him as the champion because you're right. I. Always perceived Nick Bockwinkle as one of the greatest just because of the way he presented himself on TV. Like you said, he always had the suit on, uh, the, his verbiage, you know, it, the way he, that he spoke, the words that he used when he would describe his matches or what he was doing or who he was as champion. It was second to none. And I remember in 2009 when Chris Jericho was world champion, he was almost a carbon copy. Of Nick Bachwinkle, the way he presented himself the what he wore, the way he did his promos, Nick Bachwinkle very rarely ever raised his voice. Mm-hmm. He always was very monotoned when he would deliver his promos and when he would talk about his opponents, like I grew up thinking about that was probably the way that you were supposed to present yourself. As a world champion, meaning that he was always clear headed. He wouldn't let things bother him. And that really built, uh, built to what you're saying about this young upstart in Kerr Henning and the match that they had in 86.
0: And there was, again, there were some contenders. Greg Gagne always got his beacon there with a chance to take on Bachwinkle because Vern wasn't wrestling anymore, and rightfully so. I mean, he was washed at that time. So it was time for the a young Scott Hall to have an opportunity uh, to break up the Rockers, give Sean michael's a singles opportunity there were some guys there but it was nothing like kurt heading because kurt was growing up and he started getting bigger from a muscle standpoint you love those drop kicks that was a high spot back then a drop kick and he had one of the best ones right you weren't going to give jim brunzel that opportunity but you're going to give kurt that opportunity because second generation larry the Axe's kid and you start to see dave week after week kurt Henning. His promos got better, the in-ring got better, and finally gets the opportunity against Nick Bockwinkle. And And by the way, as you well know in the history of the business, you love those type of matches where a young person, whether they win or lose, at least it puts into the mind of the wrestling fan, hey, that kid's got it. He's going to be something someday, right? He's yeah. going to be a future champion, and that's how... I felt about Kurt Hennig. We, I think we, we liked Bockwinkel, but we were ready for something new in the AWA, and that was supposed to be Kurt Hennig.
1: Now, you're talking about the build up towards the match. Talk about the match specifically. What was it about that match that really changed your perception and your fandom when it came to pro wrestling? So you, you see this
0: match at the showboat, and I'm watching this as a kid in the back room with my dad on the regular color television, and we're watching this, and we just saw the ebb and flow of an, a, the epitome of a wrestling match. No real high spots, but a lot of submission wrestling. This this setting could have been in Canada. They could have been in Japan. Just the style, Dave, the way they went about it, because there was a lot of know um, legs and and feet submission where it's like there was an Indian deathlock at one point. There's a figure four leg lock that's implemented, and that's Bachwinkle of doing it to Henning. And it was just like the young upstart baby faces trying to fight from underneath here's bachwinkle that knows all the holds they, i think lord james Bleers, who was doing color at the time was talking about how bachwinkle was a man of a thousand holds and he's he's showcased 983 so far rod Trongard, he's <laughs> showed you 983 moves he's got to pull out more if he wants to beat this young kurt Hedding. and so what I loved about it is it was back and forth. The blood did not flow until maybe 10 minutes left in the match, which is so unusual, right? Usually yep. it's like 20 minutes in 30 minutes in. No, they bled Kurt first, maybe 50 minutes into the, in a one hour Broadway. And then of course, Nick gets, gets some color. And now they're both bleeding at toward the end of the match. Here is a figure four leg lock that's put on by Kurt Henning on Nick Bockwinkle. And it was like, I don't know, Dave. It felt like five, six minutes that Henning had that uh, figure four leg lock on. And and Bockwinkle would not submit. Shaking his head as he shook his head, the blood going left and right. I mean, you talk about a crimson mask. I don't think – I couldn't see any of Kurt's face. If you go back and watch that, I mean, the blood's flowing. He had a gusher, Right. It was almost like watching AEW Dynamite on any, any random Wednesday. Uh, he when hit a Lodge gusher. When in the ring. <laughs> it, was like, it was like that. Just a random Wednesday at AEW. Yeah. But it was special during that time because they didn't exit out like WWF did, as you remember. They would X out the blood. They wouldn't want you to see it. But AWA, it just flowed. It was just... Great competition, man. That's what it was. And and again, as a young fan, eighth grade, I don't know that's going to be a draw, but just you're watching it because you're captivated. Could Hennig do this to Nick Bachwinkle, a longtime champion? And I think that's the match that made me believe, oh, my God, like no matter what's happening on WWF television or what's happening in the NWA, this is it right here. Real wrestling competition. Loved it.
1: And let's go back to that moment in 1986 at the showboat in Las Vegas between Nick Bockwinkle, your AWA champion, and a young upstart, Kurt Henning.
0: 60 seconds remaining, these two men have given everything that there is to give, not only that they have to give, but there is to give to the sport of professional wrestling. They have pounded, they have hammered, they have clawed, they have dug, they have put on every hole that they know, every weapon at their command. In the crowd, sit down, Greg. Grab a hold of Greg Gunn. Good job, back He's so excited. buckwickle hanging onto the referee. Kelly, oh. 15. He's shaking, he's shaking it up. Botwinkel, can he hang on for another 15? Here at the
1: Showboat Sports Pavilion, coast to coast, continent to continent. The continent is going down to one. It is all over. It is all over. Kurt
0: Hennig and Nick Bockwinkel
1: have Wow, Jonathan. Oh, no. I mean, yeah, going back and it's been a long time since I watched that match. It's been It's been probably about 20 years since I actually sat down and watched that match. First of all, great job with the PA announcer telling the crowd, you know, one minute, 30 seconds, 10 seconds and counting it down. And you could just hear... The anticipation from the crowd build and build as it came closer to that bell ringing <laughs> so that larry nelson
0: uh because that was the public address announcer the the ring announcer um <laughs> at some point in the 50 minute mark you could see Bockwinkel signaling over like t- tapping his wrist like how much time because they weren't giving the 30 minutes 45 minutes he kept tapping his he's like let me know how much time do I have because we got to wrap this up at some point. I'm exhausted. I'm 50 years old. Give me <laughs> give me some time for God's sake, so I know what to do with this, right? And then, and by the way, great call by Rod Trongard. Uh, that's the call of his life as an AWA play by play guy. Yeah, you know, Lord James Blears. Yeah. I- Give him, take him, I don't know. But I, but Rod was very good, though, in that moment, talking about how much they have to give. I mean, that, that call right there was great. It gives you goosebumps. At least it does for me, uh, you know, when you think about it, Dave, because, man, we didn't see matches like that. No, uh, you, you didn't get that on TV, like as an NWA guy like a like you are, like when you saw the rare Flair Wyndham, right? When you saw the Midnight Express against the Fantastics in the 60 Minutes on NWA Pro Wrestling, it was special because you didn't get great matches like that on syndicated TV.
1: Now, if I remember correctly, I mean, I remember a now in 1986, I was a freshman in high school. Mm mm-hmm. I remember actually sitting and watching this like when I got home from school. I don't remember exactly. I'm trying to remember exactly when AWA was on, but I just remember watching this match when I came home from school, my freshman year in high school. Like do you rem- like do you remember sitting on your couch or sitting on the floor watching this match back in the day? Yeah, this is uh... I want to say, and again, the Internet
0: is undefeated, so I might be wrong about this, but AWA came on uh, in Chicago on Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings. So I know it was during the day I can remember the sunlight peering through the window, (laughs) but uh, in the in the fall uh, of 86. Like I'm a I'm an eighth grader on my way to being a freshman, just like you in high school, and I believe that's where I want. I know where I was. I know exactly what room I was in because you were captivated. I mean, Dave, it's the AWA. This is all we had. Now, again, other wrestling because you know cable didn't come to our area until the later in the '80s, right? I used to, okay. used to have to have to go to my. Um, I know you had the satellite. We didn't have that in Chicago. Not in the city. We had to wait until eighty-eight, eighty-nine before we actually had cable. I used to go to my cousin's house to be able to watch pay-per-views or watch TBS and World Championship Wrestling and NWA during that time. Uh, but yeah, I remember where I was and just was captivated of the the blood, the action, and that Bachwinkle found a way to retain.
1: Yeah, a- amazing match and. You know, do you feel like that was the match that kind of made you? Hey, maybe I'm, um, I'm a fan of wrestling. I'm a casual fan of wrestling, but this made you a diehard fan, and you knew you were a fan for life.
0: Yeah, there's no doubt, and the reason why is because I'm older, and at this point in time, now I'm, you know, what I'm 13, about to be 13, and I'm, I saw matches. You know eight or nine years previous, but just to be able to understand starting to understand the psychology of what's going on there, right? Not smart as a fan, but just enjoying it and understanding like, wow, you know Kurt has an opportunity to win the championship, not just watching as a and you know just as a young person, but as a you know growing up, I'm watching this and saying, boy, he has an opportunity. I love that match, and I love the AWA but again, what's so funny, Dave is like we had no idea, the inner workings. We didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. We just enjoyed the wrestling. And I guess that makes us somewhat naive, but I mean, the information was not there for us to know. I just enjoyed what I saw from that match. And that's the match, that's my signature match that made me a fan, for sure. You know,
1: it, it's funny because you're an a, a AWA diehard because you, you know, living in Chicago, that was the show that you watched locally. And I know that the AWA in 1986 wasn't the AWA that we saw in 1983. They had, mm-hmm. you know, Hogan and Jesse Ventura and Adrian Adonis and Gene Okerlund and Bobby DeBrain Heenan and, you know, go through the gamut of what they had. But in 86, that AWA roster was very strong in 1986 if you think about it they still had like sergeant slaughter was there in 86 i still i believe yes. right he was still yeah. there in 86 because he was doing you,
0: stuff at the tropicana like, in atlantic city
1: yeah and yeah. then you had the midnight rockers with marty genetti and sean michaels mm-hmm. you had uh you still had nick bockwinkle as a champion you had kurt henning you, um, That was right at the tail end of the Road Warriors still being with the AWA as well. Bruiser Brody was wrestling in the AWA at the time. You mentioned uh, Big Scott Hall in the AWA. Uh, the Mongolian Stomper, I think, was making a, an appearance in the AWA in 1986. Vader. The Barbarian. like You think about... Like, even though there was a shift in talent, that if you look at that roster for the AWA in 1986, that was a really strong roster in 1986. It's just one
0: of those It's
1: one of those things, Dave,
0: that you see in wrestling all the time in the territory days, the inability to be able to market and move forward and go with the times. And that's what happened to Vern. All those great star- superstars, right? You know what that happened? They all went to New York. They yeah. all went to Vince and Vince did it on purpose i 'll never forgive him for that, Dave, because you know it was I understand that there was an opportunity for Vince to go national. that's great, but I, I really believe on purpose, he unplugged the AWA first. he didn 't go to Continental. He didn't go all the way to the NWA during that time in 86. He didn't go out west with the LaBelles. He didn't go to world class and didn't do that to Fritz. He didn't do that to the Savoldis in New Jersey. He didn't do that to the Sheik in Detroit. <laughs> he didn't do that to Cologne and, and uh, WWC. He did that to Vern first. And, it, and he went from Al Darusha in the back. He went to Ken Resnick. He did that. To, he took Rod Trongard. So he took, takes all the announcers. He takes all the talent. Because Vern couldn't pay them, and you know, ultimately it all started with Hogan. But I really believe that, like, whatever vendetta that um, that Vince had on Vern, he made sure he just emptied the pantry, emptied everything, like to the point where there was nothing left. He did it on purpose, Dave. That's exactly. There was a problem there. I don't know. Look. This whole thing where, like, let's break Hogan's leg to make sure he doesn't leave the AWA. I don't know if that story is true or not. Point is, though, is that Vince on purpose did that to Vern. Just wiped him clean for a long time
1: to the point where Vern could not keep up by the time we got to 87. Uh, Listen, I had this conversation with Greg Gagne on this show. Greg Gagne told us that they were building towards hogan and andre in the awa and they were going to have it on cbs you know we saw we saw it play out you know with the wwe but their goal and the reason why they're playing hogan and nick bockwinkle the way they were playing that because ultimately they were going to go to hogan and andre in the awa on cbs television and it was kind of already worked out but because of hogan leaving and then ultimately the WWE putting more of their hooks into Andre the Giant. That never, ever happened for the AWA. But I feel like the reason, Jonathan, that they went to the AWA first was because of the talent base in the AWA, and be- and really ultimately because of Hulk Hogan. I feel like the worst thing that could have happened to pro wrestling, Jonathan, was Hogan's appearance in Rocky Three. I think mm-hmm. that appearance in Rocky Three, I think... You know, Vince McMahon saw that, saw the popularity of that movie, saw that larger-than-life figure in Hulk Hogan on the on the silver screen, and said, "This is the guy that I need to push my company to go national." And you know, we hear the stories of, you know, Vern Gagne has all this TV, and they would barter with the commercials. So. You know, half the percentage of the commercials would go to the radio, uh, go to the television station. And then the other half of the commercials, Vern Gagne would be able to pocket and make some money on. Mm-hmm. But Vince McMahon went into all those markets and offered up to like five thousand dollars a week to pay to have them play WWF on their TV. Once once the TV knew they were going to make money. Then they kind of washed their hands of Vern and the AWA. And all those programs and all those stories and all those angles that Vern was building towards all got washed away because his roster turned their back on him and went to Vince McMahon, Jonathan. And, you know, I'm I'm with you. When we get into my match that made me, it's going to be about Georgia Championship Wrestling. But it's the same story that you're telling about the AWA and the fact that what we fell in love with and the reason why we became such big wrestling fans around that mid-80 period all got broken down and got washed away.
0: Yeah, I mean Vince the the really the master marketer understood how to be able to cultivate talent and market that talent. I think that's the thing that's really undersold about Vince. We could talk about all oh, great promoter and Wrestlemania and all this but the ultimately, it's about the marketing in. Hey, it's Hulk Hogan. Let's put him into some T-shirts. I never got a Hulkamania T-shirt because I don't think there was one in the AWA. <laughs> just, just but but
1: Hulkamania that, right? started in the AWA. I mean, no Hulkamania question. started in the AWA. I mean, even the point of Hogan coming to the ring with Ida of the Tiger, that was happening in the AWA. So, you know, obviously, you know, perception is built by the victors, right? But, yeah. you know... You know, everyone perceives that Vince McMahon, the genius that was Vince McMahon, built Hulk Hogan. Vern Gagne actually built Hulk Hogan. He did. And just all that
0: talent that you talked about that was right there for me to see. And again, just during this time for our younger listeners and viewers, you had to be able to talk people into the building. It wasn't like what you get today in these main event type matches just to be able to go get through a two hour, three hour show. They would give you a little taste. And then they would let you know through the promo, you got to come see this live. And, and by the way, we were there a lot in Hammond, Indiana, in Chicago, in Milwaukee, you know, to see the Crusher and the Bruiser and all this other stuff. The the crossover the AWA had with uh, Dick the Bruisers wrestling in the WWA was fantastic because it was about blood, it was about violence, it's also about great wrestling as well. And so, you know, the match that made me was was Bachwinkle and Henning. And Bachwinkle had a lot of great matches, but that one. Toward the twilight of his career, for him to give as much as he did to Henning, and knowing that the next year at the Cow Palace in San Francisco, that Hennig would not only win the championship but turn heel because of the roll of dimes that was thrown in there by Larry Zabisco. Um you know, it's just a, an amazing time. And again, a, a time in which I didn't know that the
1: company was on its ass, but just so much fun as a wrestling fan to watch. It's so funny, uh, Jonathan, as you're explaining it. In 1983, probably the biggest babyface in the AWA certainly was Hulk Hogan. The biggest heel was probably Dr. D. David Schultz. Both those wrestlers were bought out by Vince McMahon. And in March of 1984 in the Meadowlands in New Jersey, I'm watching Hogan against Dr. D. David Schultz, and I'm sure that same match happened at the St. Paul Civic Center. So if you grew up an AWA fan and you're emotionally invested in Hogan and Dr. Day, you're probably going to watch the WWF before you would watch the AWA because you go to the St. Paul Civic Center, you could see Dr. D. David Schultz against Hulk Hogan. Unfortunately, it wasn't under the AWA banner. It was under the WWF banner. Yes,
0: in the AWA, um, Dr. D never s- uh, slapped John Stossel. This is pre-slap of a John Stossel. that's yep. <laughs> so that was Before that time, Dave, no slap there. But that's the, And that's the good and the bad of it, right? As, you know, yeah. That's our home team, and that was it. But, yeah, that was the match that made me. So I want to know from you, like, what's the match that made you? You gave us a little glimpse, all right? Give us a little glimpse of the match that made you as a wrestling fan.
1: It's funny, the match that made me Jonathan is actually a match I didn't see until about five years ago, and that was the last battle of Atlanta between Tommy Rich and Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer, but it was the story leading into that match that made me a lifelong diehard pro wrestling fan. Because, Jonathan, you just said it when it came to Nick Bockwinkle and Kurt in the fact that you just didn't see matches like that on TV. You weren't going to see Tommy Rich versus Buzz Sawyer, you know, at 6.05 on a Saturday from the TBS studios. Right. You would have to buy a ticket and go to the Omni in Atlanta. Unfortunately for, you know, me, that was – uh, you know, eleven or twelve years old at the time, I wasn't able to buy a ticket and go, you know, to the Omni in Atlanta. But that story, the story between those two, and the narrator of that story, uh, story was Gordon Soli That story that built to that match made me a lifelong, diehard fan. And Jonathan, that match I never saw, unless you were in the Omni that night and were able to buy a ticket and be in that building nobody saw that match until the WWE Network released it about five or six years ago so it's pretty crazy when you think about it I want to go back to that match first let's to bring you back and us back in that time capsule let's listen in Tommy I wonder if you'd mind uh, obviously here uh, this has been a, a grueling match for both of you you have been lacerated, you're battling the man, and now uh, he leaves the ring. Well, yes, you know, he, uh, Buzz's got a bad habit about when that going just talking about running, you know. And, uh, but he can run, but he can't hide, Gorn. I'm running outside, He's it. coming down to it right here. He's going out, end up out in the street here with, you know, Buzz Sawyer, myself, and I up. And, uh, uh, Sawyer, as you see, trying to escape, and when he's finally caught up, with, he he starts retaliating. And he is uh, literally driven through the door with a hard right hand by Tommy Wildfire Rich, and now uh, obviously here in the parking lot or in the street. And uh, uh, well, as as best we can, we're bringing you this because uh, uh, the cameras certainly are not uh, in that area. Certainly wasn't lit for uh, uh, video uh, taping at that time. That's
0: fantastic, Dave, and here's why that's fantastic. You are correct. There was no play-by-play. It was just a video because I saw the same video you saw on the WWE Network. Something that is, we talk about lost moves, moves we don't see anymore in wrestling. Here's a lost piece of production we don't see anymore. The idea in the territory days where if there was no TV, hey, we still got that uh, VTR, that videotape of what happened. Let's narrate over the top of it. And let's talk about what you see. You were part of that match. You tell me from your standpoint what you saw. And it's solely or whoever the play-by-play guy is and the person in the match talking about it. That's fantastic audio right there.
1: Yeah, because you like again because if you weren't in an arena, you didn't see it. As a matter of fact, the video footage and you could see it right now on Peacock on the WWE Network. There's no commentary because and the story I believe, Jonathan, is that Paul Ellering actually had a video cassette of that match that he gave to Triple H so that Triple H can give it and make it a part of the WWE Network because it was the feed that was given to the big screen that was in the corner of the arena at the Omni. Mm -hmm. So like that's why there was no commentary. It wasn't televised. It wasn't put anywhere on TV. But what uh, the NWA did and Georgia Championship Wrestling would do is the week after they would show like a very small clip of the match And then Gordon Sully would interview whoever participated in that match. And that was a great way to make sure that you had to be there the next time that Georgia Championship Wrestling was in the Omni in Atlanta. But even Shawn Michaels, Jonathan, talks about that match. That was the influence for Hell in a Cell. Because what they did is they put a roof on that cage. It wasn't a traditional cage. They actually put a roof on that cage when Buzz Sawyer and Tommy Rich wrestled, or I shouldn't even say wrestled, when they fought Mm -hmm. at the last Battle of Atlanta, October 23rd, 1983. And to make sure that precious Paul Ellering didn't interfere, they put him in a cage that was high above that 15-foot high steel cage. Mm -hmm. And then if Buzz Sawyer lost then Ole Anderson would get time with Precious Paul Ellering in the cage after the match. Like It was such a wonderful story. But again, I didn't see any of that. Mm -hmm. So I, I saw the story build and all the interviews and the action between Buzz Sawyer and Tommy Rich, and that feud, Jonathan, went on for almost two years. That feud went on, and it was a true blood feud, and it really prevented Jonathan... Tommy Rich escalating to that next plateau. Because think about it. That was a former NWA champion, Tommy Rich. But that feud focused so much on between those two for almost a two-year period that Tommy Rich never sniffed that NWA championship again because that story was so engulfed between those two. And the the years and the, the sweat and the tears and the blood that was dripped from that feud Again, escalating to that last battle of Atlanta. And all I had, Jonathan, were the pictures in the magazines. Those snapshots, the cover of those magazines. That was, that was, to me, the video image of what actually took place between those two in Atlanta. And you always, you know, we say it all the time. It's a cliche. A picture can tell a thousand words. If you don't mind, Jonathan, I'm going to grab that magazine. So look at look at that cover, man! Look at those guys! Wow!
0: Look I mean, just
1: that. I mean, Tommy Rich is just like the both of them, and seeing that cover, Jonathan, and it's Sports Review Wrestling, which was in that um, family of After magazines. The old After mags, man. Tommy Rich, Buzz Sawyer feud reaches a bloody end, and that was it. I think they may have faced each other one other time in WCW, but it didn't really mean anything. That was truly the end of the feud. So that story, this picture on the magazine, and then I, it's just it's unbelievable. Um, I actually have uh, Tommy Rich. I actually had Tommy Rich um, autograph for me. Um, oh wow! The picture, but look, look. I mean look at the fa- look at their faces, Jonathan. Oh my god, the blood. The blood it's Both it's un it's unbelievable like as a young person 12 years old seeing those pictures and falling in love with I mean the the, the emotional connection, just the, the the brutality and the violence that made that took my wrestling fandom to a completely other level. And Georgia Championship Wrestling was that for me, like you and in, in Chicago, you know the AWA. Georgia and and I'm I'm I live in New Jersey, yes. But Georgia <laughs> Ch- and and I always I've told this story before, Jonathan. The first time I ever saw a pro wrestling, I was with my buddy Jeff, and I was at his house, and he says to me, he goes, "Have you ever seen wrestling?" And I go, "Isn't that fake?" And he goes, "No, that's the WWF. Yes, that's fake." But the NWA is real. How can I not think it was real based on some of those photographs? And I believe there was like a good year, Jonathan, that all I watched was Georgia Championship Wrestling because I figured that was real and everything else was fake until finally I kind of got smartened up to what the pro wrestling business was. But even though I didn't see the match until I was well into my 40s, that's the match that made me was Buzz Sawyer and Tommy Rich. A couple of things about this. Number 1, I think it's so
0: funny that even though we grew up in different areas, we had the same perception because my friends also thought this is just, you know, kind of like glow the WWF Kind of like low, like it's very soft. It's not the same. A lot of jazz hands, a lot of fun, these parodies and these vignettes. It's like, okay, well, the blood and guts is in the N.W.A. The blood and guts is uh, in, you know, Georgia Championship Wrestling, the Territories, Crockett. You know, uh, that's where the real wrestling is. That was our perception, right? Because wrestling is supposed to look aggressive. You have men in suits telling you how it is. It didn't seem like you know all the production and and the clean white mat Cartoonish. of the WWE. You know, WWE
1: yeah. is very and and the AWA, Jonathan, yeah. was more of like that was like the technically sound pro wrestling. That's like right. So many of those wrestlers had an amateur background and understood uh, the holds and what it took to win an actual wrestling competition. That was always my perception of the AWA that Everyone that was a part of that was a great athlete and a great uh, a great amateur wrestler.
0: But the promos, though, is the thing that's that sold it, Dave, because the promos were a lot better in those territories, especially Georgia Championship Wrestling at the time, than it was in WWE. You had Vince McMahon doing pretty much a Howard Cosell impression. I mean, Gene Okerlund was solid, but then solely talked to you like you were an athlete, had the mic right there, talking to you like you would talk to any other athlete, and that's how it came across. Yeah, the guys were. You know, yelling and screaming about trying to sell you tickets and telling you, you got to go see this because I'm taking on this guy. I'm going to beat this guy up. But it felt more like boxing and wrestling than it did what the WWF was doing because what they were doing is a lot of jazz hands and it didn't seem as real as it did in these other places. I want to talk to you also about the match. So um, I, I saw what you saw on the WWE Network. I want to just ask you. Your reaction, once you finally sat down and watched it with the wobbly cage, (laughs) I want to know what your reaction was, because this is something that Uh, you're uh, emotionally (laughs) invested in, right? I can't (laughs) wait to see this. I can't wait to see this. And what happens? You get a wobbly cage, a wobbly roof on top of the cage. So... Uh, Did it meet your expectations?
1: All right. Before I answer that, Jonathan, you have to understand that for the longest time, this was the holy grail to me was this match. That's right. You don't know how many times I got duped where, you know, whether it was through pen pals or tape trading, Mm -hmm. how many times somebody contacted me saying they had a copy of this match. And I've actually given money, uh, care packages full of wrestling memorabilia. You don't know how many times I got duped where nobody had a copy of this. I mean, seriously, I know it sounds like pretty ridiculous that this happened, but that's how much I wanted to watch this match. And then randomly one day, there it is on the WWE Network. Now I will answer your question. Let's just say when I first saw it, at the beginning the first few minutes chills like i like almost in disbelief Mm -hmm. that i'm actually watching this match between tommy rich and buzz sawyer but let's also just say i've never gone back and watched it again (laughs) because it wasn't very good it was very anticlimactic actually the best part about it is when Ole Anderson gets those five minutes with precious Paul Ellering in the cage. That was probably the best part of the match. But the match itself between Buzz Sawyer and Tommy Rich, you know, de- definitely did not live up to the hype. No doubt about it. And the reason why that was, Dave, is
0: because they didn't think there was a camera in the house. And they had been battling for two years and bleeding all over that territory, all over Georgia, all over that whole area. And they thought, we're finishing up. Even though it's the Omni, right? It's the Omni, yeah. and you should give your full best at the Omni because that's the Madison Square Garden of the South at the time. Um, I think that the way I saw it is, God, they're finishing up, right? They, said, yeah, they like, just
1: wanted it to get it over with and to move on at that what, point. What
0: you, what you wanted was some of those um, matches, again, not videotaped or maybe a, a, a kind of a private camera someplace where they were giving their all right bleeding all over the place where it looked like the the battle was strong on tv that's what you wanted when i saw that wobbly cage i was thinking god almighty first of all get a good cage in there a real cage (laughs) for god's sakes that thing is wobbly the second thing is is i thought okay well this is the end i think that i want to point this out you tell me if i'm wrong i think what makes it special for you also this battle between tommy rich And Buzz Sawyer is that I don't recall if it was always for a title. I just think they just hated each other. It
1: was never for a title. It was never for a title. It was always just about their pure hatred between each other. And you're 100% right. Like the cage, like it's almost like it's so anticlimactic because you're watching and you're like, oh, man. But, you know, again, those pictures. And you know, and thank a Bill Aptor and a George Napolitano, all those people that took those pictures of that match when you think of Buzz Sawyer, you think of the last Battle of Atlanta. when you think of Tommy Rich, you think of the last Battle of Atlanta. you know uh Jonathan, when YouTube first became a thing, I remember when YouTube first became a thing. I think it was back in like two thousand six, two thousand and seven when you know everyone discovered YouTube. Mm-hmm. The first thing I did was I searched. Tommy Rich Buzz Sawyer, last Battle of Atlanta, hoping that there might be some video footage and people actually made documentaries of this match without having footage of the match, just using all the interviews and the promos building up to this and it just and all they did was show the still shots of the match because there was no video footage of the match, so mine's a little bit different, obviously, Jonathan to match that baby was a match that I didn't see until. You know, 35 years after it actually happened. But you bought the story. That's the thing. That's, That's the it. the hook,
0: though, Dave. It was the hook of the story. Like, you saw the promos. You saw the back and forth. There was always a little interaction, of course, because you have to have a little something to have the carrot on the stick for people to come to the arenas to see this. But understand, for our, our younger listeners and viewers understand that Tommy Rich was the ultimate babyface, And people were looking at that time. They were looking forward to seeing Tommy get back on top and be the NWA champion. Buzz Sawyer, as we come to find out now, was completely out of his mind. Out of his mind. That wasn't much of a character. That really was him. Out of his mind. And so, even though these two were not the biggest guys, they were not hulking, they had something in common. They could not stand each other. And the fans were behind Tommy because Tommy was a good old boy, southern dude, and and Buzz Sawyer was a maniac. And so, people wanted to see Rich beat Sawyer. That worked all over the territory, and I'm sure they made money hand over fist.
1: And it's funny, your match... it it was the end of Nick Bockwinkle's career and it was winding out but it was the beginning of what was a Hall of Fame career for Kerr Henning with Buzz Sawyer and Tommy Rich that pretty much was it for them that was the pinnacle and neither wrestler was ever the same uh, after that feud and that match was over Jonathan, great sharing the matches that made us. Make sure you subscribe to the Busted Open podcast. Make sure you listen to us each and every day, seven days a week of Busted Open on SiriusXM Fight Nation. We'll talk to you later on the matches that made us. Busted Open is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcast. Catch the full three hours of Busted Open Monday through Saturday at 9 a.m. Eastern on SiriusXM Fight Nation, channel 156. Go to SiriusXM.com backslash Open Trial to start your free trial today.